Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio, taking my cue from History Channel. It's Nazi Week. And uh, right up, we have not a Nazi, but a, an avowed anti-Nazi, George, Dr. George Reisman. He's an author of Capitalism, a Treatise on Economics, and also has authored an article on the degree to which Nazism was not a free market philosophy. He's a professor emeritus of economics at Pepperdine University. You can follow his work at capitalism.net. Dr. Reisman, thank you for taking the time today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So one thing that's always bothered me, uh, and it's, it's sort of a little salvo in the propaganda wars, but it's the degree to which the Russia is referred to as communist, but National Socialism, uh, and if you read the platform of the Nazi Party, the National Socialist Party in Germany in the 1920s and the 1930s, we'd find it has quite a lot in common with um, pretty socialist policies um, currently underway in the Western uh, world as a whole. But we don't refer to the Nazis as national socialists, but rather as Nazis. In other words, the word socialism is obscured from the Nazis. I think there's fairly clear propagandistic reasons for that. But I wonder if you could give us a brief history as to what kind of economic policies Hitler's party was pursuing and why we would differentiate those from a free market. All right. Well, first of all, you have to recognize uh, philosophically the Nazis were uh, um, they held uh, the common good goes before the private good. And they had the idea the individual is subordinate to the state and is the means to the ends of the state. So two would be his property. But what uh, actually created a, a, an actual socialist system in practice, as opposed uh, to being philosophically uh, present, uh, is uh, the combination of inflation of the money supply uh, and price controls. Uh, in order to pay for rearmament and all the public works projects, uh, like, like of the autobahn, uh, the Nazis greatly expanded the quantity of money in circulation, and that enabled people to spend more money. But now, as spending more money, uh, prices tend to rise, and they were the Nazis were terrified of rising prices because uh, in 1923 had uh, an inflation and consequent rise in prices to the extent that destroyed the old mark. Uh, prices were trillions of times what they had been um, in prior to one. So they're very much afraid of rising prices. And to stop the rising prices, they imposed price and wage controls. But they continued expanding the quantity of money. So on one side, uh, people are attempting to spend more and more money based on the additional money in circulation. And on the other, the prices and wages that they can confront are fixed. So they're attempting to buy more and more quantities of goods and labor, and very quickly they outrun the supplies of goods and labor. So you have massive shortages of virtually everything. Now, uh, in consumers' goods, what such a thing means is uh, people who get to the markets early in the day are in a position to buy up all the supplies, and those who get there late in the day or in the have to go away empty-handed. So a consequence of shortages... Uh, uh, the imposition of rationing. So it's not enough just to have the money price of goods. You, in addition, have to have the necessary ration coupons. Uh, that's only the most obvious consequence. At the same time, government uh, has to start taking control of... We had experience of this in our own country back in the 1970s uh, in the oil crises. The oil, we had oil shortages uh, starting in 1971 
uh, running for a few years, and then in the late uh, 70s, and uh, both felt of the combination of an expanding quantity of money on the one side and uh, a price control on oil and oil products on the other. And uh, we had a gasoline. Uh, most of your listeners probably are too young to remember uh, such things as odd, even rationing days. Uh, if your license plate ended with a number, uh, you could get gasoline perhaps uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. If it ended in an even even number, you could only get gasoline uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Well, uh, the government uh, uh, introduced uh, gasoline rationing in that form. Uh, they were on the verge of uh, having more serious rationing. Uh, they in the new carried copy books with pictures of Washington on the coupons. We were close to the point of people having 2% ration coupons to get gasoline. But the government was also uh, having to determine to what extent refineries concentrated on the heating oil, gasoline, jet fuel, propane, butane, whatever, because each of these products came to, to have a, a shortage. Uh, people were attempting to buy more of all of the products uh, than were available. Now, in that environment, production becomes chaotic. Uh, what, what this means is uh, when gasoline is confronted with a shortage and heating oil is confronted with a shortage, the possibility exists that the refineries could increase the supply of either one at the expense of reducing the supply of the other, and there would be no effect on price or profitability. For example, if the uh, oil refinery stepped up the production of heating oil at the expense of a reduced production of gasoline, uh, the, the price of gasoline was not able to rise, nor the profit of gasoline, because of price controls. At the same time, because of a shortage, the additional supply of heating oil would not reduce the price and profitability of heating oil. So the production between the two became simply random. In a free market, you wouldn't have such a situation. In a free market, if the refinery stepped up the production of heating oil at the expense of gasoline, the price of gasoline would immediately start to rise, and so would its profitability, while the price of heating oil would immediately start to fall, and so would its profitability. So the, the market compels the oil refineries to provide a proper balance of the different oil products. But price and wage controls destroy that. Uh, they interfere, they destroy a rational geographical distribution. For example, if there's a shortage of gasoline in the San Francisco Bay Area and in the Los Angeles Basin Area, well, it's possible then for more gasoline to be taken away from either area and shipped to the other area with no effect on price and profitability. So that becomes random. Uh, when you have universal price controls, price controls on everything, the production of anything in the economy is, can be made to expand at the expense of the production of anything else however important and vital and urgent it may be, without any effects on price and profitability. So production becomes totally random and chaotic. And in this environment, to uh, deal with the chaos its own policies create, the government assumes control over what's produced, how it's produced, where the product is sent, uh, in what quantity things are produced, what methods of production are used. So uh, if you add all of this to determine, to setting the prices and wages of everything, uh, the government is exercising all of the substantive powers of ownership. It may appear that things are privately owned. If you went to the city hall in, a, in Germany, the city hall of Berlin or Dusseldorf or wherever, uh, you'd undoubtedly find a record 
that uh, this particular factory is owned by that particular firm and so on and on. But in reality, it was the Nazi government that was making all of the substantive decisions about what was produced, how much, by what methods, etc., etc. So that's de facto socialism. Uh, the man who discovered this was Ludwig von Mises, so I'm proud to say was my mentor, and he distinguished two, two varieties of socialism. Uh, there's the um, Russian or Bolshevik pattern, where the government openly nationalizes everything, and it's clear who owns the means of production. It's the government. And he also recognized the German or Nazi pattern, uh, which was first uh, enacted in World War I under uh, Ludendorff. And there, uh, while everything had the outward guise and appearance of private ownership of the means of production, it was actually the government that exercised all of the substantive, all of the de facto powers of ownership. So, uh, in actuality, Nazi Germany was a socialist country. Right, and, and there is uh, pe people have this confusion because they look at the legal ownership of the structures right. and say, well, you know, Adolf so-and-so, whatever his name would be, yeah. would be the person who would be deciding whether to produce more or less of a particular good. But, of course, if the government is imposing wage and price controls, they're using levers which have a direct effect on the production decisions made by people whose concerns are nominally private. Right, and they're telling the, the firms what, in fact, to produce. Like the government in our country, with the oil shortages, ordered the refineries uh, when the winter was approaching. They had to order them to step up the production of heating oil and cut back the production of gasoline. Because in the chaos of the price controls and the shortages, uh, they, would, they had no reason to do that. Uh, so the government took control of the actual determination of what's produced in what quantities, where it goes, and so forth. Now, uh, even when the government assumes all these powers, uh, they really don't solve the problems to any great degree. They can assure the production of certain things which are of special priority, but they have no way of, uh, of rationally dealing with the economic system as a whole. Uh, most things are in a state of chaos. Uh, the, you, know, it, you have to realize that you can't decide the production of any one thing uh, without in some way taking into account the effect on the production of everything else. Uh, for example, if the Soviet government wanted to expand shoe production, uh, there are a lot of questions in connection with that. Um, do you step up shoe production in Minsk or in Pinsk? Uh, each, each decision has different for, uh, side effects. Uh, do you make the shoes out of leather? Or can you uh, use other materials like canvas? Uh, to what extent can you uh, use rubber instead of leather? Uh, and uh, if, you're, if you're deciding to step up the production of leather to have more shoes, should you uh, raise more cattle or should you get the leather uh, from other places that use leather? And e each one, uh, if you get the leather from other industries that use leather, uh, what substitutes do they have available? Now, the, now what this means is that a socialist government in trying to decide the production of any one thing really has to simultaneously decide the production of everything. Uh, that's what people expect from a socialist government. They think uh, under capitalism, everyone is going off just doing his own small thing, concerned only with his own particular spot in the economy, not paying any attention to the rest of the economic system. That's true, and that's fine under capitalism, because what ties all of the individual decision-makers together is the price system. 
uh, all of the decisions being made in capitalism, uh, in production under capitalism, are based on a consideration of prices. Uh, prices both in the form of revenue and income and in the form of costs of production. So uh, what, the, what the revenue and income indicates is the extent to which your production dovetails with the plans of the buyers. All the buyers have their own plans. And what the costs of production uh, bring about is that your plans will dovetail with the plans of all of your suppliers and the, comp the competitors of your suppliers and the suppliers' suppliers. The, the price system ties together uh, the, the plans of all of the individuals in the economic system uh, and, and coordinates them. It makes, it makes a, a harmonious whole. I, I need to elaborate on this a bit. Uh, let me give you the following kind of example. Uh, first of all, we need to realize that capitalism even has planning. Uh, most people assume that capitalism is characterized by what they call an anarchy of production. Everybody races around like a chicken without a head. He's only interested in his own profit or loss. And it's true that people are only interested in their own profit or loss, but that's precisely what ties, to get, ties their activity together with the wider economy. For example, uh, when my wife and I uh, decided we wanted to move to California, we had a housing plan. Our housing plan was we wanted to get a house high on a hill overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Well, we stopped off at a couple of such houses that were offered for sale, and when we learned their prices, we realized we just couldn't afford such a house, so we had to revise our housing plan and settle for a house several miles inland. Now, as an economist, I am able to know that uh, the reason we had to change our plan is that there were other people with plans that entailed obtaining the same houses, only they were willing and able to pay more for those houses than we were. So when we changed our housing plan, our new housing plan was consistent with, coordinated with the housing plans of others able and willing to pay more than we were. Well, and just, just to point out that if, if the government had set the housing prices overlooking the ocean artificially low, yeah. you would have been even less likely to end up with one of those houses because either they would have been snapped up by the first comer or they never would have been built in the first place. Right. And, and then even those who had the money that could have obtained the house in a free market, they would have been deprived of the house, too. So it would have been snapped up by the first passerby. Now, uh, another example, imagine you have a college student in his freshman year. He wants to major in some esoteric subject. Maybe he wants to be a shepherd or God knows what, a, a Renaissance French literary expert. But uh, perhaps by the time of his sophomore year, he wakes up to the fact that if he pursues that path, he'll spend his life starving in a garret. So he decides to change his major uh, to something like accounting or marketing. Now, he's changing his uh, job plan, and without him realizing it, He's selecting a new plan that coordinates better with the plans of other people in the economy. There are far more people planning to use the services of marketers and accountants than who are planning to use the services of shepherds and uh, French Renaissance literary experts. And also, just to mention as well, he is reducing the demand or he's decreasing the price of accountants while increasing the price of shepherds and French literature majors as well. So he's actually contributing in, in a different way to people making different decisions who come after him. Right. And so, but the point, main point is he's changing his plan to coordinate with the plans of others throughout the economic system. Now, planning goes on every day by everyone. 
people have all kinds of economic plans. There are people planning to buy homes or to rent apartments. There are people planning to buy a new TV set or a new refrigerator. There are people planning to keep their jobs or uh, learn a better job. People planning to stay where they are or uh, move to a different location. Business firms are planning to open branches or close branches, to increase their inventory or decrease their inventory, to hire new workers, fire existing workers, to keep their methods of production the same or uh, change their methods. And all of these plans are based on a consideration of prices. And this consideration of prices is what ties the plans of all of the millions and tens and hundreds of millions of individuals throughout the economic system into a cohesive, coordinated whole. So capitalism has planning. It's not recognized. It's like the character in a Moliere play back in the 17th century, Monsieur Jourdain, who uh, spoke prose all of his life but never realized it because he didn't understand the meaning of the word prose. Well, uh, that's the situation with economic planning under capitalism. It goes on all around us. It exists everywhere, but people just don't recognize it as planning. What they think of as planning is a handful of government officials getting together somewhere and uh, giving orders as to what everyone else will do. Now, this is an insane situation, and you can see why socialism necessarily has to fail. Uh, the government is attempting to monopolize planning in the hands of a, a small group, the, cent the members of the Central Planning Board, or maybe even in the hands of just one man, the supreme dictator. And they're prohibiting economic planning on the part of all of the millions, tens, hundreds of millions of their subjects. Now, this is comparable to an arrangement whereby the legs of a handful of people are being expected to bear the weight of the whole population. We need everyone to go on his own legs. We need everyone to think and plan to have a planned economic system. We need the planning of everybody, which is what we have under capitalism and the price system. Under socialism, there is no economic planning. It's impossible. What you have to have uh, for the economic planning of socialism would be a supreme being, the supreme deity, would have to descend from heaven and run the socialist system. Because what you'd need is a, a mind capable of knowing all of the different factors of production, all of the different factories, all of the different machines, the warehouses, the stockpiles of materials of all descriptions, their specific locations, what their technological capabilities were, uh, what they could possibly produce uh, within the next week, month, quarter, whatever. And then uh, on the basis of all of those permutations and combinations, uh, what could be further produced in the next week, month, or quarter, and carry this process forward over a period of years, and then pick some uh, distinct combination and give orders to take the steps uh, week by week, month by month, to achieve that uh, ultimate goal. Now, that's just utterly impossible. No one has the kind of brain required to do that. We, 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 would, uh, we, would all, we would all understand this in the realm, uh, in affairs of the heart, which is somehow distinguished from the affairs of the head and the hands. Like if there was a government agency that claimed to have the ability to know who everyone should marry, everybody would be like, say, this knowledge is not possible. Everyone has their particular taste. Right, Those tastes very, may change. That's a very good, a very good uh, example, a very good analogy. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll try to use that in the future. Thank you. 
Yeah, it should be it should be a pull market. In other words, it should be based upon what people are willing to expend resources on. Of course, everyone forgets that while human desires are infinite, all resources are finite, and you need some way of allocating them. And I think, as Mises has pointed out, as early as the 1920s is coming up to a century ago, that it, without the calculations available to people for free, instantaneously, dynamically, in real time, through the mechanism of price, there is absolutely no way. There's not a second best way. There's absolutely no way to rationally or even morally allocate resources in the absence of price. That's exactly true. So the irony is that socialism, which people think of as a system of planning, is an unplanned chaos. And capitalism is a highly rationally planned economic system. It's planned by all of the individual participants, and their individual plans are integrated, harmonized, coordinated uh, by the price system. Now, you've talked in this uh, in this uh, article. I think one of the um, one of the great uh, arguments that you put forward not not that great is a particularly rational term, but I think hopefully my audience knows what I mean is the degree to which totalitarian forms of control not just related to economic activity are necessarily like dominoes falling from things like wage and price controls and i think this ties in to some degree to some of the disasters that have been seen in government policies designed to counteract economic transactions where there is no victim or no complainant like uh, drugs uh, illegal drugs at the moment or prostitution or gambling and so on. So can you just talk a little bit about the dominoes that start falling in the less economic spheres, uh, in the more the personal spheres, in what happens to the court system, how many government agents you need, how intrusive they need to be as a result of these economic controls to counter the black market? Well, yes, uh, if you consider price controls, uh, uh, on the one side, uh, the, the, the businessmen uh, would uh, be happy to be able to get a higher price and make a better profit. And there are many customers who'd be happy to pay the higher price uh, to get what they want. And uh, so the potential is there for a black market. And if the government did nothing further, uh, the black market could become enormous and uh, totally uh, destroy its price controls. If the government and the taxes as well, of course, the tax base as well that it needs. Right. So if the government is serious about in- enforcing the price controls, they have to have pretty severe penalties and they have to create a good chance that uh, violators of the controls will be caught. Now, uh, if they were simply imposing a fine, the fines could come to be regarded just as an, an extra cost of doing business, and the fines wouldn't be effective. So they have to impose penalties of a kind uh, that, that would you normally find uh, on a major felony, like uh, 10 years in jail or something like that. And in order to uh, create a real chance of people being caught, they need an army of uh, spies and secret informers. So you'd have to worry if someone is in your shop uh, looking to pay you an above market, uh, an above price control price, uh, is, is he uh, legitimate or is he an agent of the police? And so you have to be, people have to be suspicious of one another, including their longtime uh, friends and associates, even their relatives. So uh, no one can trust anyone in such an environment. And, and this is an important feature of a totalitarian dictatorship. And uh, uh, you probably would have a difficult time uh, getting these severe penalties uh, imposed uh, as the result of a jury trial. So uh, what the government needs is not only severe penalties and an army of spies and informers, but also the ability 
to impose the, the uh, to convict without a jury trial. They need to have an administrative process of convicting people and imprisoning them. So this is a feature of a totalitarian dictatorship. And then further, uh, given the economic chaos, you know, uh, the leaders of socialism are in a dilemma. On the one hand, they promise a life of improving prosperity. They promise that they'll take care of people from cradle to grave. But what they deliver in practice is an economic nightmare. There are shortages of everything. Uh, in the Soviet Union, people had to spend hours and hours each week waiting in line uh, for things like potatoes. Uh, you, you couldn't get uh, uh, clothing uh, in the department stores, except uh, rarely they'd get a bunch of things in. Uh, people would walk around with huge quantities of cash, uh, lists of the clothing sizes of their friends and relatives, and when they, something was available, they would all be snapped up immediately, and uh, th that's your only hope of getting something. Now, uh, if you ha and also, when the government is allocating the factors of production, one of the most important things they're allocating is human labor. Uh, the government decides which uses require uh, how much labor and where. So in the Soviet Union, uh, uh, the graduates of, co of colleges and technical schools uh, were uh, compelled to work in uh, wherever the government ordered them uh, for a number of years. Uh, people living on the collective farms could not be away uh, uh, for more than a few days. Uh, people could not quit their jobs uh, without the approval of their uh, existing government employer. And so here you are, you've got people who are spending hours waiting in line every week uh, for, for getting the, uh, their rations, and they're in jobs that they don't like, that they can't leave. Uh, you have tremendous overcrowding in housing. Uh, you have different families living in the same apartment. Uh, uh, you have uh, we have housing shortages. Uh, there are some places, some cities, where it's more desirable to live than others, like Moscow and Leningrad. And uh, in order to uh, prevent everyone moving, attempting to move to those places, uh, the government has to restrict the internal freedom of movement. So you need a passport and uh, the equivalent of a visa uh, to be able to travel to certain cities in your own country. Now, uh, put all this together. Here's someone wasting hours every week in line in a job he hates, uh, living in overcrowded conditions. He's not going to be a happy-go-lucky sport. He's going to be seething with anger, resentment, hatred. And who would be the logical target of his anger and hatred? The people who are making all of these decisions, who have promised, who have said that socialism is a perfect system, uh, that only uh, uh, evil can uh, prevent its, uh, its perfection from coming to the fore, they're the people you'd hold responsible. So the potential exists in every socialist country uh, for a violent dictatorship and uh, overthrowing the existing government, who people have every right to blame uh, for their miserable economic conditions. And uh, in, in order to prevent that, the socialist government has to keep a tight lid on the population. They have to have an army of spies and informers to make, uh, make people afraid to utter uh, the slightest remark that could be interpreted as against the regime. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the government has to have hysterical propaganda, blaming the conditions on uh, foreign wreckers, uh, uh, on uh, 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 party officials, 
uh, who supposedly represent uh, an illegitimate branch. You have periodic purges uh, where, uh, rank, where whole groups of officials are sacrificed as though it's their responsibility in the bad conditions, not the responsibility of the socialist regime as such. Well, and of course, uh, given that uh, people are so discontented with the regime, unmuzzling the fourth estate, having freedom of the press, would be incomprehensible in terms of serving the self-interest of the rulers. Right. There's no freedom of the press. And, of course, there's no freedom of the press uh, based simply on the fact of government ownership or control of the means of production. If the government owns the presses or determines who gets newsprint, uh, you can't print what the government doesn't want printed. But under socialism, uh, the violation of the freedom of press is even beyond that because there's a hysterical hysteria attached to it. Uh, the government is terrified of people uh, getting any idea as to the government's responsibility. So you have this uh, constant propaganda on the virtues of socialism, uh, that all the evils are caused by uh, foreign wreckers uh, or uh, disloyal party officials, and you've got, as I say, these periodic purges. So there's no freedom of the press. There's no academic freedom. You can't even have a group assembling. Uh, you can't even have a, an art show. There's there's no activity independent of the state. Uh, you couldn't even have a, a, a non-governmental stamp collectors association, because even at, at wherever it's possible for people to meet, if the government doesn't have control over it, it's in danger. And one of the great efficiencies of this uh, Nazi this Nazi approach to socialism is, I think, as Tom Sowell has pointed out, that you get the scapegoats, you get the middlemen, because when the government openly controls the means of production, as in the Soviet Union, all disasters are easily traceable to the government. But of course, if the government's impl- imposing wage and price controls, people don't go to a government store. They go to a, quote, capitalist local store and find it empty or find the prices too high. Or, and so they have someone to blame that's not the government itself. And of course, in Nazi Germany, that turned disastrously towards the Jews as well. Right. That's, that's a good point, too. Under uh, socialism, uh, any black market activity uh, entails automatically uh, the further charge of the theft of state property. Uh, because if you're uh, using uh, materials from a government-owned factory and you're uh, selling the products in the black market, uh, that uh, is tantamount to stealing the materials. So that's a further charge. Now, both under uh, socialism of the Soviet variety and socialism of the Nazi variety, uh, whoever is engaged in black market activity uh, is interfering with the government's economic plan. Uh, and we know how chaotic that is. Conditions are nightmarish. Now, if on top of everything else, uh, the government can't even rely on its statistics of what are the materials available to it, uh, where they're located and so forth, because uh, uh, people are um, uh, diverting them into the black market, well, that's disruption of the national economic plan. And that's tantamount to sabotage. So uh, for this reason that you end up with people getting shot for uh, uh, such things as dealing in the black market. Because by the logic of socialism, uh, they are committing an act of sabotage, namely sabotage of the government's uh, national economic plan. And they're certainly disrupting the plans of the central planners, of the managers, by, quote, allocating resources that are outside of the plan. Uh, but, but in a way, they're almost necessary as a way of explaining uh, why things are going so badly despite all of this central planning. Well, I mean, the irony is on the one side, the socialist regime 
will uh, will be, be trying to execute these people uh, for, to help blame the, its problems on them. But on the other side, the fact that uh, things are being sold in the black market helps to alleviate uh, the, the destructive consequences of socialism. And uh, a good deal of uh, such economic activity as took place in the Soviet Union uh, was on the basis of the black market. And um, that made it possible for things to get done, at least in some places, to some extent. Mm. Now, I wonder if we could switch gears for a moment, because, you know, one to me, one of the great and, and valuable reasons for studying history is to apply the lessons to the present. And I've made the case on this show many times that if you want to know whether there's a free market, the first place you need to look is, is there a free market in money? Uh, is there, are there competing currencies? Is there perhaps a gold-based standard or some other basket of currencies that limits the production of money and thus keeps inflation to some degree at bay. Because, of course, what consumers want is deflation. <laughs> price going down is good for everyone. Well, I would hesitate uh, to call that deflation. Consumers do want falling prices. No, you're right. Yeah, that's a better better way of putting it. But um, So wage and price controls in the West, and you know, you're know you the expert, so correct me where I go astray, but it seems to me that wage and price controls, in particular uh, price controls on money, the degree to which central banks manipulate the price of money through the manipulation of interest rates would seem to me the most invisible levers that are currently uh, tearing apart the remnants of the free market in the West. Could could you see if there's a way to apply some of the lessons that we've been talking about with Nazi Germany into modern central banking and the manipulation of currency, of, of debt, and particularly of interest rates and see if, if, if that's having an effect on current economic uh, problems? Well, I don't think uh, the manipulation of interest rates is comparable uh, to wage and price controls. Uh, the government is expanding the quantity of money. Um, you see, when you have wage and price controls, the government is not in a position to uh, expand the production of, of the various individual goods under the price controls. I mean, the government might be able to do this with some goods. Uh, uh, the government might be able, let's say you have a small country, and the government spends an awful lot of money on buying potatoes in the world market, and then it offers uh, these potatoes at a very, very low price uh, domestically. Uh, I think uh, that would be somewhat analogous uh, to the uh, low interest rates. But this would be the nature of a government, this would be along the lines of a government subsidy uh, driving down a price rather than uh, a price control. See, right. if, the government, if the government wants to lower a price, uh, a possible way is to subsidize the expanded production. But they can't do that across the board, and uh, it gets very expensive. So uh, they think they can just lower the price without having to increase the supply, and then you get shortages. Yeah, because, I mean, certainly up here in Canada, the subsidization of farmers has led to increased prices. The subsidization, of course, in America of university tuitions uh, has, uh, to a large degree, driven increases in prices. You may get a temporary drop, but then all the bureaucrats and rent seekers come swarming in and <laughs> tend to drive the price and keep it rising. Yeah. And are there other areas where you think that uh, these um, disastrous planning mechanisms of the um, National Socialists in Germany may be showing up in uh, the American economy? Well, uh, I, I think that's the, by far the, uh, the, the main connection, uh, the influence, the, the, the popularity of price and wage controls, 
Uh, people don't realize that that would give us a Nazified economic system. Uh, there are some ideals that the Nazis held, which some people hold here, but I don't think uh, they're particularly widespread. And that is the idea that a country needs to own its own natural resources. Uh, a major idea of the Nazis was that uh, Germany needed to control the territory large enough so that uh, within its borders uh, would be all of the different uh, raw materials that uh, a modern economy needed. Uh, that's their uh, rationale for wanting to conquer uh, the Soviet Union. Well, and that would be the case for a war economy, because, of course, when you wage war against your neighbors, they tend not to ship you the raw materials for your war machines. But if you have that within your own borders, it's easier to wage a longer war. Right. They wanted to get uh, a territory. It's sort of circular. Uh, they wanted to go to war to get the uh, the resources. And then, of course, having the resources would enable them uh, to to go to war again. Um the, the truth is, and here the Nazis connect with the conventional socialists again. You see, the socialists believe that in order to get the benefit of property, you have to own it. Uh, the socialists uh, think, think of other people's private property as serving only the owners. The socialists have the idea that all private property has the status of consumer's goods. You know how they depict a capitalist? He's always a fat man, and the capitalist has this huge pile on his plate, a huge pile of pasta. And on the other side of the table is a starving worker who has three beans. And the socialists think uh, that what's entailed in redistribution is taking a little bit away of the superfluity of the capitalists and putting something on the plates of the starving workers. That's how they see things. They're totally unaware that the overwhelming bulk of the wealth of the rich in a modern capitalist economy is not in the form of consumers' goods, it's in the form of means of production, in the form of factories, pipelines, freighters, railroads, whatever. And that the physical beneficiaries of this wealth are the buyers of the products. For example, if we ask who gets the benefit of the oil fields owned by the Exxon Corporation, it's not the, owner, the buyers of Exxon stock, it's everyone who buys gasoline, heating oil, or any petroleum product. They're getting the physical benefit of Exxon's oil fields and the physical benefit of U.S. steel steel mills and General Motors auto plants and on and on and on. Uh, in a market economy, the physical benefit of the means of production goes to the buyers of the products indirectly through the products. And uh, so you don't have to own something to get its benefit. You get the benefit of the auto plants, the oil fields, uh, the department stores, just by being able to buy the products. Well, and there's, there's a frustrating incomprehension on the part of people who talk about the market who often have never actually been in the market. Um, and it's not necessarily the case with you, because I think we agree about the value of the free market. But uh, in my uh, late 20s and up until about the age of uh, 42, I, I was a software entrepreneur. I sort of co-founded, built companies. And you actually are a slave to to the people you want to sell to. You, you don't gain money by exploiting people. I mean, you, you don't go out and beat people up in a parking lot and get money. What happens is you find a way to make other people's money go further, their time be more enjoyable, or you find some way to improve other people's lives. It is through service to human happiness and 
human productivity that we end up with profits. It's not just ripping off uh, starving workers. That's, a, I mean, that's just a caricature. Right, exactly. Now, uh, the uh, point I wanted to make between this uh, conventional view of the socialists and the Nazis is the Nazis think that to get the benefit of natural resources, your country has to own them. That's not true. Or in order for the uh, people of Germany to get the benefit of the uh, wheat fields of Russia, all they have to do is be in a position to buy the wheat. They don't have to have sovereignty over Russia. And that's a fundamental, simple point that uh, nationalists don't recognize. We're in the same position as the conventional socialists. Now, also, I, don't need to own a, I don't need to own a movie studio to watch a movie. In fact, it would be ridiculous if I had to because they're very exactly, expensive. Exactly. Now, not only uh, does everyone... Uh, who buys the products, gets the benefit of the means of production. There's also a second benefit to the non-owners of the means of production, and that's in the form of the demand for labor. The privately owned means of production are the foundation of the demand for the labor of the non-owners. So uh, the greater the wealth that's invested in means of production, the more abundant is the supply of products and the lower their prices, and the greater is the demand for labor and the higher the wages. This is a profound, simple truth uh, of which people are equally unaware as they are of the fact that uh, there's economic planning under capitalism and uh, that uh, socialism is planless. So there there are two huge areas of economic ignorance. Uh, One is the fact that under capitalism, non-owners of means of production have a twofold benefit from the private property of the owners. Namely, it's the foundation of the demand for their labor and the source of the supply of the products they buy. And then also that uh, capitalism is a a totally planned economic system based on a consideration of prices in the form of uh, sales revenue and costs and in the form uh, of wages. So uh, there's immense, incredible ignorance about capitalism, uh, which I think could be relatively easily overcome. Oh, it is is very frustrating. And it goes back to what Bastiat said, that there's a a mistake between society and the state. And, And if people say, well, the government shouldn't do X, that somehow people think that we're saying X should not be provided. Like, oh, if the government shouldn't provide education somehow, we're against education. As Bastiat said, he said, if I'm against government monopoly of wheat production, that doesn't mean I don't want to eat, uh, have any wheat in society. It simply means I want to have it voluntarily, uh, freely, uh, more efficiently uh, and, and trade it openly. Uh, so that what happens is, of course, people say, well, if there's no central planning, there's no planning. And they confuse central planning with politically expedient chaos. And they think that there's no coordination without a central planner because they don't understand the value of price. Right. They have, uh, Mises uh, described this as statolatry, state worship. Uh, <laughs> you could also call it uh, the pharaoh mentality. Uh, people have the idea that they are all nothing. The pharaoh is everything. And the pharaoh is capable of, of doing everything. The pharaoh can solve all of their problems. They can't solve any of their problems. That's their mentality. Well, and it becomes one of these self-fulfilling prophecies in that when the government accumulates so much economic power, major economic players, even nominally private ones, have to 
focus on pleasing the government, have to try and gain government contracts. So the belief almost transmutes itself into a reality because, of course, as a CEO, you have a fiduciary responsibility to produce maximum profits. And that if that means courting the state, buying off congressmen and so on, you actually have to do that or you can be found negligent. So it does become one of these situations where once the state becomes big enough, uh, people do need to need it in order to profit and, and triumph in what remains of the free market. Yes. Well, I just uh, really want to thank you for... Sorry, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, We are, for those who don't know, just listening to this uh, conversation, I'm going to read... Uh, Dr. Reisman's article, uh, which is really uh, important to to get into your head, because there is this misconception that, you know, this terrible left wing, right wing paradigm that is just a Mobius strip of incomprehensibility, where you've got Stalin, who's a dictator on the left, and Hitler, who's a dictator on the right, which means what? I don't know. It is a useless scale. But um, it's really important to recognize the degree to which all totalitarian, all central planning is hostile to the free market. And the free market is simply the non-initiation of force, respect for property rights, and allowing people to to live voluntarily with each other, to shake hands rather than draw weapons. Uh, so it's really important to understand this. Please go to capitalism.net for fantastic articles on and you know historical articles, archives, current events. Um, Dr. Reisman, do you have any other things coming out imminently that my listeners would be wise to know about? Yes, uh, I'd like to urge everybody to... Uh Look me up on Amazon.com under uh, Kindle Books. I just posted a new one called uh, Freedom of Opportunity, Not uh, Equality of Opportunity. And uh, whoever is interested in the problems we've discussed today, I'd like to refer them to my uh, main economic treatise, Capitalism, a Treatise on Economics. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com, in both in Kindle uh, format and uh, hard copy. And... Uh, uh, I have a blog, uh, George Reisman's blog at uh, .blogspot.com, and uh, my website, is, uh, as has just been mentioned, is uh, www.capitalism.net. And I'm on Twitter. I will put links. Uh, yeah, we'll put links to all of that uh, to make sure that people can get a hold of your stuff. Lucid writing, clear thinking writing, and writing that will be like Roman spears against the Genghis Khan hordes of status propaganda we've all been <laughs> exposed to since day one. So thank you so much, Dr. Reisman. I hope we can chat again. I hope so. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Take care.